Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. I'm David Alt, and you're listening to the Wicked Library. Warning. The Wicked Library is a horror fiction podcast created for a mature audience. Our stories contain graphic descriptions of pain, murder, violence, blood, betrayal, and inhumanity. Monsters win, people die, and hope is often shattered. There is also beauty, heart, catharsis, and raw emotion. Fear may be deeply personal, but we all share it. If at any time a story takes you to a place too dark, turn on the lights, press pause, or press stop. And always remember that unlike in the real world, these nightmares and your participation in them are under your control. Welcome to the Wicked Library. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. A sincere thank you to those of you who are supporting the show. Without you, this show would not be possible. This season, all episodes are heard first by Patreon supporters and later shared with the full audience. When you support the show, you can choose between ad-free episodes, early access to the stories, and at higher levels of support, you'll get premier access to Enfield Detective Agency currently in production. That's right. Frank is back and coming to your ears soon. You can support the show at patreon.com forward slash Wicked Library. A lot of hard work and money goes into making the Wicked Library, and I really do rely on this support to help us pay the authors, voice actors, composer, and artists so that none of our contributors works for free. For as little as $3 a month, you can help make the show you love possible at patreon.com forward slash Wicked Library. Now, let's get wicked with today's dark tale told by Graham Rowett, with a custom score written by Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams. It Stares Back at You, by Vincent Robert Nacount. By the time I left the refuge, the first streaks of dawn had tinged the jagged pinnacles and seracs to the east of the glacier with pink light. I scanned the frozen expanse beneath me, trying to pick out a potential route to my destination, and set out to climb down a sheer cliff of exposed rocks. With a rush of excitement, I stepped onto the airy, metallic structure and began my descent. The wind was whistling around me making the ladders and narrow ridges seem even more precarious. I pressed on, unconcerned by the precipice. 
It wasn't my first time in the Mont Blanc area. I was glad to be back, to feel the cold mountain air on my face, and to challenge the dizzying heights once more. Until five years ago, I had spent most of my holidays here, either dangling from a rope above the void or skiing down the powdery slopes. If the early stirrings of my obsession with this vast, chaotic stretch of ice were lost to my memory, it was obvious that the trip I made five years ago had marked a decisive turn. With my climbing companion, a British expat named Will, we decided to take advantage of the last days of cold weather in early spring to attempt the infamous off-track ski descent through the Giant's Glacier and down White Valley to the town of Chamonix. It was to be our last epic journey through the so-called Sea of Ice, one of the largest glaciers in Europe. A proper send-off before I left for the United States. I'd accepted a job offer in a New York office, completely giving up my dream of becoming a mountain guide. When the day of the descent finally came, it brought along tumultuous clouds sagging over the valley and a mean, icy drizzle. The weather was much warmer than we had anticipated, and it had made the slopes treacherous. We proceeded slowly, trying to avoid patches of ice and mounds of wet, sticky snow. As we were zigzagging between the colossal seracs above the sea of ice, the fog rolled in, forcing us to slow down even more. We slogged through a monumental maze of ice pillars, trying not to think about the low rumble in the heights above the valley. This late in the season, there was always a risk of avalanche. All around us, cyclopean shapes were emerging from the dull grayness, like shipwrecks, forever trapped in a frozen storm. It wasn't long before I realized that we were way off course. There was no doubt in my mind, but I couldn't bear to admit it openly. After what seemed an eternity of trudging along the moraine debris and looking for an easier way down... I became distracted by a distant, continuous sound. Will and I decided to change course and track its source. Only a short way down and a little while later, we were standing next to a deep gully, which had been carved by a powerful torrent of bright blue meltwater tumbling down the middle of the glacier. The gap was too wide to be crossed, and, since it was that kind of a day... It soon became evident that we were on the wrong side of it. Thankfully, a crust of icy snow had formed near the edge of the torrent, offering us a quick way down. We couldn't wait for a change of clothes and a warm cup of coffee. Will went whizzing away, and I followed a few dozen feet behind him. Soon the roar of the stream grew louder, almost to the point of drowning all other sounds. The reason for this became obvious once I reached the gaping hole into which the water rushed with much froth and thunder. I braked hard and steered around the cave mouth. A perfect circle, ten or fifteen feet wide. I stood near the rim, gasping and wondering why Will didn't stop to have a look himself. It took me a moment to realize that he was laying on the edge, some twenty or thirty feet down the icy shaft motionless. All it would have taken was a little more speed or a misplaced patch of ice, and I would have ended down there with him. My mind quickly filled up with what-ifs, all leading to catastrophic outcomes. Not that Will's situation wasn't catastrophic, but at least I could try to rescue him or call for help. Looking down, 
I saw that he was now shouting, but I couldn't hear anything above the din. I fumbled through my pack, looking for something, anything that could help me get him out of there. But when I glanced back into the chasm, the ledge was gone, swallowed by the darkness below. After a moment of frantic, breathless panic, I felt the abyss beckoning to me and found myself drawn to the void. How long did I peer into the oblivion, wondering about its seemingly bottomless depths? I fought the urge to hurl myself into the hole and, to make a long story short, managed to get back to town. I learned later that these shafts were called moulons. They were known to be fickle and unpredictable features of the glacier's ever-changing landscape, often collapsing and reforming elsewhere. All rescue attempts failed. Will was considered lost, his body trapped in a crystal blue coffin or, more likely, crushed under gigantic ice blocks. In the years that followed, I often dreamt about the Moulin's gaping maw and deep, unexplored hollows. After a period of initial reluctance, I went back to Chamonix a few times and even scoured the glacier. My repeated failures to find anything even remotely like the Moulin in which Will had disappeared became frustrating. My love for the mountains waned. I couldn't set foot on the ice without imagining vast caves and dark tunnels plunging to immeasurable depths just beneath me. The interval between my visits lengthened until I stopped coming altogether. What compelled me to come back for the fifth anniversary of Will's disappearance, I couldn't say. I hadn't planned on going back to the glacier, but... As chance would have it, I overheard a group of mountaineers talking about a deep, circular chasm that had appeared in the northernmost part of the Sea of Ice. It was already late in the morning when I reached the bottom of the ladder section. A strange feeling overtook me, as if I'd set foot on a fixed path laid with immutable rails. A voice whispered in my mind, barely audible above my eagerness to press on. There was still time to turn back and return to warmth, to safety, and to sanity, but this itch of mine needed to be scratched. After a short hike, I stumbled upon a deep channel etched into the glacier. Something must have blocked or diverted the torrent of meltwater responsible for carving it, because the gully was nearly empty. The next hour or so I spent under a blazing sun following the dried-up riverbed. Hard snow crunched under my crampons as I reviewed my equipment. 250 feet of rope, a harness, a pair of ice axes, a helmet with a powerful headlamp, some climbing gears, and two dozen ice screws. Although my preparation was impeccable, I still felt that my motive, did I even know what I was looking for in the glacier's bowels, was questionable, if not downright irrational. Such a thought, it struck me, was something straight out of the mouth of Captain Ahab. Before long, I was staring blankly into my white whale's single, inscrutable eye. I knew it couldn't be the same Moulin as five years ago. Not only was it in a different location, but it also seemed larger and was shaped like a lopsided crater. No matter, I thought. There wasn't going to be another opportunity like this. 
Yet, standing next to it made my skin prickle. I had to fight off the overwhelming impulse to leave. On some deep level, I knew that such places weren't meant for us to visit. Survival instinct, ancient atavistic fear, altitude sickness, call it what you will. I also knew that once missed, this chance wouldn't present itself again. It seemed silly to have gone all this way just to back away now. Just a quick peek, I promised myself while setting up an anchor. Then, with a surge of trepidation and awe, I slowly leaned over the edge. There, almost suspended between the sky and the abyss, all fear left me for a short while, and I felt the pull of the void once more. I knew how dangerous it could be. Hadn't I witnessed it firsthand? Will's fall or rather the moment when there was nothing where he had been seconds before, was imprinted in my mind. Yet, despite my gut instinct screaming and rebelling against each nerve and fiber of my body, I lowered myself down, inch by inch, moved by some primeval force beyond my understanding. It wasn't as if I had lost my mind, I told myself, trying my best to sound confident. After all, I had warned the refuge keeper that I was going on a solo trek on the glacier. My rope anchor was as sturdy as one could hope for, and I was confident in my experience in ice climbing. I didn't trust my ascender to work in such conditions, but I had planned to set up anchors with ice screws at regular intervals to help me on my way up. See? I said out loud, the sound of my voice echoing down in the Moulin's funnel. You've nothing to worry about. Just slow down, breathe, relax, and enjoy the views. I'd assumed the inside of the hole to be dull and gray, but nothing could have been further from the truth. It was as if I'd stepped into another world. All around me, the walls were alive with light and colors. Shimmering blue, dark purple tinged with orange and pink. Everywhere the bright sheen of crystals glimmering in the half-light. I was so mesmerized that I hardly realized how small the blue circle of the Moulin's mouth was becoming. By my estimate, I was about thirty feet deep when I next glanced to the surface. Reaching for the wall, I managed to grab hold of a protruding ice boulder and set up a rope anchor with two screws and carabiners. It would make the ascent easier and help maintain the rope in place to prevent it from scraping against sharp edges. Not that I expected to descend all the way to the bottom, just a safety measure, nothing else. With my back to the empty void, I absailed further down. The colors grew dimmer, more subtle, dark grays with hints of blue. The silence which so far had only been broken by the clanks of my crampons and the squeaking of my rope, seemed heavier, more palpable. Noises closest to me were muffled and faint, while far-off sounds reverberated, amplified to the point that I could hear the trickle of a few drops hundreds of feet down. Auxiliary tunnels branched out from the main shaft in every direction. The Moulin's inside structure was complex beyond my imagination. I began to wonder about these narrow, meandering spaces. They seemed to be taunting me to explore them, 
Everywhere I turned, my headlamp made the black walls glitter with specks of golden light. After rigging the fourth anchor about ninety feet down, I took a break and listened. The void gaped below me, steeped in Stygian gloom. I shifted in my harness, trying to find a more comfortable position. My skin crawled, cold and clammy. I wriggled again, annoyed by an itch under my helmet. It was probably the dark wearing on my nerves, I assumed, letting out a nervous laugh. It was strange, noticing how much of an effect the situation had on my mind. I couldn't tell whether it was the black emptiness below or the immensity of the glacier pressing all around me that was more unsettling. Breathing became hard as my chest grew tighter. One moment I felt the walls closing in and imagined what would happen should the moulin collapse. In the next, I was losing all sense of the world above, and my own being was becoming insubstantial, just another shadow lost in the inky blackness. Time to head back out, I thought, and slammed my axe against the wall. It bounced against the ice with a resounding thud and sent needles down my forearm. I tried to gain a foothold, but my crampons barely scratched the wall. I took a deep breath, hoping to slow down the pounding in my chest. A few attempts later, my lungs were wheezing, my mouth was dry, and I only had made minimal progress. My arms were shaking and burning with exhaustion. With a cry of desperation, I let go of my hold and dropped back down. Hanging from the rope, shivering and limp, I began to lose the sense of time. Who knew how long I'd been underground? It could have been hours. I was about to give up when something brushed against my leg. I twitched and fumbled in a vain attempt to turn around, but only managed to tangle the rope. Impossible, I thought. Nothing could survive down there. I would have ascribed it to fatigue and sense deprivation had I not felt it again, more distinctly this time, like a firm hand pulling me downward. Terror swelled, chasing the air out of my lungs. It was at this point that an absurd thought crossed my mind. Not simply absurd, but utterly insane. I tried my best to push it aside and ignore it. The thought came back, more insistent, until I cried out, Will? Is that you? My voice cracked. It's me! It's your friend, Harry! I remained as motionless as possible and listened intently. At first there was nothing but the sound of my chaotic breathing. Then from the depth came the distorted echo of my voice, shrill and foreign. Harry, it said, barely louder than a whisper. Harry, the voice resounded in the black void. Harry? The echo grew louder, more inquisitive, filling me with dread. Twisting and turning like a fish hooked at the end of a line, I caught a glimpse of a pool of crystalline water bleeding into another crevasse. I thought I saw darker shadows creeping out of the pit, but it could have been my imagination. Something stirred below. 
footsteps. The air shivered around me. A low rumble echoed in the distance, shaking me to my core. The roar of some unseen monstrosity, or the sound of crumbling ice blocks. Sheer bloody panic squeezed my throat and nearly overtook me. I wriggled and writhed, kicking and screaming, clawing at the rock-hard wall. In the confusion, my helmet came off. Gasping with horror, I watched it fall. It bounced against some boulders, dropped near the edge of the pool, and fell further down in a large cleft until it was only a tiny, distant speck of light lost in an ocean of obscurity. Once my eyes were accustomed to the dark, I looked up, hoping to see the light of the surface. I had little notion of how long I'd spent in the Moulin. Could have been night outside, or some clouds could be blocking out the sun. I grabbed hold of the rope anchor. There it was, I thought, sturdy and reassuring. I let my finger run across the rope. A lifeline, a guide through the night. With a strength I didn't know I had, I thrust my axes in the ice and began carving my way up. Soon my whole body was sore, but I found that I had more endurance than I could ever imagine. I carried on, determined to reach the surface at any cost. The thought of the outside spurred me. I could almost feel the warmth of the sun and the kiss of a light breeze on my skin. The muscles in my forearms seized up when I reached the next anchor. Only two more to go. Two more anchors, and I would breathe fresh air. No time to rest. I climbed further up. I couldn't feel my hands and feet. The tip of my nose seemed about to fall off. No matter. There would be people looking for me. Helicopters, even, if I only could make it to the surface. I got to the third anchor exhausted and shivering. Almost there. Only one more. Who was I kidding? The only thing that was waiting for me outside was a cold, lonely death. But it didn't matter to me. All I wanted was to emerge from this crevasse, to see the moon and stars, to feel the earth beneath my feet. The walls seemed to enclose as I slithered my way up the shaft like a cockroach hardly paying attention to the cold and the dark anymore. From time to time, a low rumble came from the Moulin's entrails, like a distant thunderclap. I closed my ears and pressed on, anxious to escape from the horrors lurking in the depths far below. The shaft seemed to grow tighter and tighter. Out of breath, I kept clawing my way up as quickly as I could. In my hurry... I passed two more anchors without stopping. Number nine, perhaps. Or was it number ten? All I needed to do was to hold on and climb further up. Below me, the abyss beckoned. I refused to listen and tightened my precarious grip around the rope. Thank you for listening to episode number 1202. Today's author was Vincent Robert Nacald with his tale, It Stares Back at You. 
Today's story was told by Graham Rowett. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I've been your host today. Our resident composer and executive producer is Nico Vitese of We Talk of Dreams. Artwork for today's episode was created by Greg Schaefer. Our producers are Meg Williams and Daniel Foytek. To find out more about The Wicked Library and our other shows, visit thewickedlibrary.com and ninthstory.com. If you'd like to help us continue to bring you our collection of dark tales, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wickedlibrary. You can also help us by leaving a five-star rating and short review in Apple Podcasts. These ratings and reviews help other listeners find the show, which helps us generate revenue to ensure no one contributing to our show works for free. The Wicked Library is created by Ninth Story Studios, LLC. All rights reserved.